Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. We are off this week reporting on some fantastic new stories, so we're bringing you some of our favorite podcast pieces from the past year in this Rewind episode. The first will be a piece on queer artists in Nevada and their quest to find their voice as artists and their place in the LGBTQ community. After that, we have an interview with Taylor Wilson, one of the youngest people to ever achieve nuclear fusion. We chat about science, education, and what makes Nevada such a great place to be a scientist. Let's get into it. The streets of Reno were filled with people celebrating gay pride in Reno's annual Pride Parade. The festivities were plenty while celebrating the LGBTQ community in downtown Reno. In June, during Pride Month, Sierra Arts Foundation, a Reno-based nonprofit that supports and boosts local artists and promotes art education, hosted dozens of local queer artists in one of their galleries. I sat down with a few of those artists to talk about identity in both the queer community and in the arts community. Hello, my name is Brandon Copley. I am 36 years old. I am from Reno, Nevada. My mother is from the Maidu tribe, which is Northern California. And my father is from Mohawk and Seneca, which is uh, Western New York. And I'm a multimedia assemblage artist. And I identify as Two-Spirit. A simplified version of what Two-Spirit is, is an identity that some Native Americans take on that refers to them taking on both a male and a female role in their communities. Indigenous people call themselves like Two-Spirits. It's the masculine and the feminine, like, combining together. It's not hugely, like, recorded, so it's kind of hard to identify either as, like, Two-Spirit or Native. Probably mostly identify with the queer community. I mean, I watch, like, RuPaul's Drag Race, like, every week, so that's, like, my go-to TV show. I love watching that. It's a largely matriarchal society. I mean, there is a sort of disconnect. Brandon's piece in the gallery was titled The Boxes That Broke Us, and was a mixed-media piece. It shows a broken feather hanging from a rosary from a house, a bow and arrow hanging from a schoolhouse, and a cornhusk doll in a noose hanging from a church. So the main inspiration behind the boxes that broke us was I read The Black Elk Speaks, which is a Sioux holy man, and his kind of definition of the boxes were these two-dimensional houses or schools that confined Americans or natives in kind of their spirits. So kind of breaking that was using the rosaries to kind of break the native spirit of the free-flowing feather and using kind of like the feminine toy, like the cornusk doll that's broken there and using like a traditionally masculine toy for boys was the bow and arrow that's broken as well. In my own like process of grieving like a lot of the Indian residential school news, it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, this is a way for me to reconnect with not only like my heritage, but a different side of the heritage. So a lot of it had to do with like kind of processing that grief. Artists can bring anything to the table and some artists, they really use, you know, painting, sculpture, film to really kind of grapple with the complexities of identity, including, you know, gender and sexuality. 
That was Lynn Camella, a professor of gender and sexual studies at UNLV. I think when it comes to queer artists and queer art, you know, certainly not all queer artists explore queerness in their art, but a number of them do. And I think that visual mediums allow them to really start to tackle and kind of blow apart really rigid categories and identity markers. And I think explore ideas and sometimes even themselves in really intersectional and complex ways. I kind of move in that middle space between like having the privilege of that heterosexual relationship, but then also feeling queer. It's taken me a really long time to find where I am in the queer community, but I definitely do feel like that is like, those are my people. I felt other from like heteronormative. Hey, I'm Jenny Snaza. I'm a visual artist. I identify as pansexual. I'm a mother and I have two beautiful children and I am with a cis male partner. Jenny is another artist that was featured in the CR Arts Gallery. Her piece titled Tears is a tile piece where the tiles are breaking and a colorful mass is breaking through the center. It, it's called Tears, but there's also like this other meaning of tears. And so in the breaks, there's this kind of seeping out and this push out of the grid. And so that piece was such a metaphor for my identity and my queerness kind of pushing through this other, that topical identity. Jenny talked about her struggle of really embracing her queer side while outwardly being in a heterosexual relationship. When you go out as a couple, my identity is not something that is brought up. It's just assumed that I'm heterosexual. It's a really privileged way to move through the world. And I don't have to be confronted with kind of the, the homophobia or the stereotypes and all of the negative energy that can come from an outside view. Brandon also struggles with his identity, both as a member of the queer and native community, when it comes to both his native and queer identities and his identity as an artist. This is like the first piece I've ever actually had displayed, so I'm very much like trying to find my footing. I feel like it's kind of hard to like blend the two together because it's always been kind of like a struggle, a personal struggle is just like, do I identify as more two-spirit or more native or what's kind of like the blend? I'm one of the, the generations that's part of the lost generation that there's not fully native, but obviously not fully white either. So it's hard to identify as either one or the other or this or that. Some people don't even know what two-spirit means or whatever, but I feel like kind of getting to a point where I can work on art that's native or queer is okay. And then blending that together eventually, I'll probably get there, hopefully. Brandon said his interest in photography led to his current artistic style, which in his words involves being able to juxtapose things or kind of mess with people's expectations. 
So kind of like that idea of working in 3D and being around like something physical that people can either interact with or see different angles or sides with. I still kind of feel like I'm just like learning about this whole process. There's kind of like this division between especially like native art and other artists that it's like wholly traditional. Like this is how the natives did it, you know, centuries ago. And that's how it's supposed to be done. And that's how you should do it. Because I have family members that have done that. Like this is the necklace that I've made and all sourced this way. And I'm just like, okay, that's a little, little much. And then there's this other kind of like contrast to that where there's kind of this new age contemporary native art where it's kind of like pushing new mediums and pushing new ideas as well too, which I kind of like, and I feel like that's where I'm going towards. Jenny is also working towards trying to understand her identity more with her art. Right now I'm working with tile, which I love materials in general and just exploring how the media works and exists in its own space. So the tile as like a really fragile yet durable material. We line our cities with it. We line our houses with it. It exists in all these places. So you have this tile and this grid, which I think is just the perfect metaphor for so many things, but especially in the piece that I had at the show for Pride Month, it's like this white sterile grid, which I think just perfectly represents the patriarchy. But then like the tile can represent all different kinds of systems. And so when we break the system, like there has to be this action, this like breaking point where there is room for change. So when you break it, there's this new space in the middle that I just think is so optimistic and exciting. And there's room for action and growth. I hope that the like the optimism of a break comes through. And I think that especially with the pandemic and like everything that's happened, I feel like there's been this huge crashing of identity and feeling of loss. And sometimes things come out of trauma that are, that are life-changing and there's so much more on the other side. And I just, I feel that matches up so much with like queer identity and yeah, everything that's going on in the world right now. And let's talk about some of what's going on in the country right now. Here's UNLV professor Lynn Camella again. We're at a really kind of dangerous moment, I think. And it's not just the recent decision around Roe v. Wade that makes it a dangerous moment, right? But what the overturning of that decision might mean for precedence on which kind of gay marriage rests. So there's that, right? Like what this recent Supreme Court decision means for all sorts of other decisions. But I think if we look around the country right now at what is happening in certain state legislatures, legislatures. Let's take Florida, for example, you know, the passage of the don't say gay bill, it is becoming increasingly difficult for educators to talk about and teach certain kinds of material related to gender related to sexuality, and certainly related to the history of race and racism in this country. So I think what we're seeing across the country is a really dangerous kind of legislative overreach and a we're, we're sitting at a very, very challenging moment in terms of censorship, right? Mm -hmm. And I think art has always been on the front lines of pushing back against censorship. 
um, artwork that engages with topics of gender and sexuality is important in the best of times, and it is especially, especially important in dangerous times. Art is a way for people to express themselves, and Jenny told me that her art is about her identity and about her struggles of being in the middle and not being sure if she wants to label things. When you put a label to your identity, it gives you a lot of power and is super important for coming together, moving the cause forward, visibility. It's so powerful. But then I think there's another side of that where in naming something, it becomes concrete in a way that maybe isn't flexible enough. And according to Lynn, the flexibility of expression is exactly the point of art. Gender organizes the world in really basic ways from kind of, you know, public bathrooms to the toy stores. <laughs> and so I think that queer artists really have a potential to kind of move beyond the binary, right? To complicate people's ideas that gender is an either or, or that sexuality or sexual orientation rather is, you know, you're straight or you're gay. If you'd like to see Tears by Jenny Snazza or The Boxes That Broke Us by Brandon Copley, there'll be a link in the description of this episode. We have another very Nevada story. We head up here to Reno to talk about nuclear physics. And I can hear you turning the podcast off, but you shouldn't because I promise this isn't going to be dense. No, it's not going to be dense. Uh, I got the opportunity to chat with Taylor Wilson, who at the age of 14 built a nuclear reactor in his parents' garage and is someone who I would consider a genuine genius. Now, these days, Taylor is doing research up at UNR, and he's also running his own company, which is looking to make modular nuclear reactors. You can also see him hosting Vice News episodes about science, and he's a regular at TED Talks. Taylor has also consulted on popular sci-fi movies and has worked with the Department of Defense to help defend against nuclear threats. He took a break from his busy workload to join us and talk about living in Reno, the past, present, and future of Nevada's role in nuclear energy, and a whole lot more. We've got a slice of Joey's interview here for the podcast, but if you want to listen to the whole thing in the full 40 minutes, you can subscribe to our newsletter, Soundcheck, which will have a link to the full interview in the December edition. So without further ado, here is my interview with Taylor Wilson. I'm assuming most people don't know who you are, or if they do, they've heard you in the news probably five, ten years ago, right? You were the kid that built a nuclear, I might get this wrong, nuclear reactor in your garage? Yeah, nuclear fusion reactor. You live here in Reno. Let's just start with kind of your story. How did you end up here here in Reno? You're a, you're a nuclear physicist. You are about a year older than me, 28. How did you get started in this? Yeah, it's a great question. I tell everybody, you know, everybody needs a hobby, and I just found what I loved when I was really young. So I think that's probably what sets me apart is when I was 10 years old, I discovered nuclear science, and I was like, oh, it's pretty cool. I spent my whole life growing up being kind of curious about the way the world works and being interested in science. And I went through phases where, you know, I was building rockets and wanted to be an astronaut. But when I was 10 years old, I found nuclear science. And I was like, this is pretty interesting. I've got a knack for it. I'm kind of good at it. And I enjoy it. And I think it's something potentially that I can make a difference with. Most 10-year-olds that I know, 
mm-hmm. are not saying, hey, I want to get into nuclear science. I want to watch Pokemon or play GameCube or something. <laughs> what was that? Or did you also have those normal 10-year-old boy interests? I'm sure I had like normal interests, but I was always, I mean, even when I was like super young, like two or three years old, I was just always super curious about, you know, the way the world worked. And I think that's kind of what sets you up for being a natural scientist. So what brought you here to Reno, Nevada? You're not from Nevada originally. Yeah. So I grew up in Arkansas and the schools there were okay. But when when I was in middle school, I think we started thinking about what, what are some opportunities outside of what we had available there for me to kind of expand my horizons. And funny enough, I think actually my sister was on a plane flying somewhere and she had a Time magazine. And inside the Time magazine, there was a story about the school in Reno, Nevada, called the Davidson Academy. It was a very random thing that she stumbled upon. And I think she sent it to my parents. We're like, hey, you know, this is kind of interesting. And so one thing led to another and came out for a visit. And uh, the really neat thing about the school is it's on the campus of the University of Nevada, and it's a school for the profoundly gifted, for gifted and talented. But it really is one, if not the only school like it in the country, and that it's a, it's a free public high school. But it's set up so that if you're if you qualify, right, if you test into it on SAT or IQ scores or whatever, you can attend the school. And if you're really, really good at, say, science, but not so good at English, you can still take those English courses like regular middle or high school courses. But because it's on the university campus, you have access to the wide breadth of anything you're interested in. I think the way we teach people science or humanities it's too siloed. You know, that's kind of my personal philosophy on it. I think the more that people in the humanities understand science, the better off they will be. And the more people are in science, understand the greater societal context of the work they're doing, the better off they'll be. Nevada has a history with nuclear testing. Do you think that the state kind of foster your, your curiosity? Yeah, you know, I will say that one of the things about moving to Nevada that I was so excited about was its kind of legacy and involvement with nuclear technology, you know, the Nevada test site and all of these things. And partly, I think that's one of the reasons that I have stayed here. I, I love this state for a lot of reasons. I love it for the, the kind of natural environment, for the history of the state. And there's a lot of interesting things that happen in Nevada that your average Nevadan just doesn't really know about. One of the fascinating things about Nevada is there are less people born here that live here than any other state in the country. And I think that reflects something that goes back to kind of the the early pioneer history of Nevada is people came here in search of, of new things, whether it was making their riches in the gold and silver mines of Virginia City or the burgeoning Las Vegas Strip. People ask me all the time, why, why do you live in Reno? Why do you live in Nevada? You could live in New York City or London. For me, there's so many enticing things about living in Reno and Nevada that that are the reason I'm still here. I fell in love with the natural environment. I fell in love with the mountains and the desert. That fuels a lot of kind of my research, going out and being able to study the geology of Nevada, study the, the microbes that live in the soil of the desert, and study these incredible minerals that Nevada has incredible diversity of minerals, more than probably any other state in the union. So those things, the natural environment, attracted me. But for me, it really started to feel like home. I do a lot of traveling. Before the pandemic, I spent probably two or three weeks out of every month on the road traveling all over the world. And Nevada and Reno was a great place to come back to. How how do you feel about the future of energy? And is there a role that Nevada can play in, in, in that future? 
Oh yeah, no, I, I, it's fascinating. And I, I like to tell people, I think there's no state better suited for the transition that's happening right now than the state of Nevada. We are undergoing really the most important technological revolution, probably since the industrial revolution, the invention of the steam engine right now. A lot of that is around electrification. So a lot of the things that in the 20th century we used fossil fuels for, we're now able to do with electricity. And this is everything from electric vehicles, cars, buses, aircraft, to electrifying homes uh, and electrifying industrial processes. We want to uh, reduce and eventually eliminate our dependence on fossil fuels because of carbon emissions. So where does Nevada fit into all of that? Well, first of all, we have incredible natural resources in the state. I think most Nevadans are probably unaware of all the things, all of the wonderful things that lie beneath our feet. And obviously we're the silver state. And so silver is one of those historically that we've had. And there's a lot of silver used in the kind of energy technologies of the future. But then you just go down the list, everything from obviously lithium to copper, rare earth elements. There are amazing resources in the state. And being able to transition to a new energy economy requires accessing these resources. And, and my hope is that we can do it in a very sustainable way that really is a lot different than the way we did in the 20th century. Instead of kind of digging up big pits in the ground and, and kind of disregarding the externalities of the way that we produce these materials, that we can do things like institute leaching and, and brine production and things that have relatively low environmental footprints. I think Nevada's set up really well to do that. So I think when people hear about nuclear energy, I think that there is some concern, right? Like Three Mile Island, Fukushima. Do you, do you share any of those concerns or, or, or do you have any for the future of nuclear technology? What are your biggest concerns when it comes to the, the future of this kind of technology? Absolutely. When I was about, I guess, 17 years old, that's when Fukushima happened. And I've now gone there. I've been able to go inside the reactor building, one of the few people that have, have been able to do that. And that was very interesting to see this up close. But I remember when it was happening, going out on the roof and collecting air samples and seeing the fallout come over from, from the Fukushima accident. It really kind of, I think, reinforced the power of the technology. I think I, I definitely recognize that it had this vast potential, right, to produce carbon-free electricity at incredible scale. It was incredibly energy-dense technology. But nuclear power today has downsides. And I'll, I'll just kind of touch on three. One is the risk of accidents, and that's something we saw at Fukushima. Now, the risk of accident on any given day at a nuclear power plant is relatively low, but the technology itself has some intrinsic drawbacks. And so you can make nuclear power, and we have made nuclear power incredibly safe in this country, but that also means that it's very expensive. So that leads into the second point. If it's too expensive to build and scale, then it has a minimal impact on the transition that's happening. And so that's something I've spent a lot of time working on, is how do you make a nuclear reactor that is intrinsically inherently safe? Nuclear power is incredibly exciting, and it's just it never really was perfected. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and we don't have time to get into the entire history of it. But I think, I think we finally possess the the tools and the technologies to make nuclear reactors in a, in a safe way and being able to mass produce them. What I'm working on is nuclear reactors that are kind of like aircraft. You have a standardized design, a standardized licensing process, and you build a bunch of them in a factory. And that's much different than the way that we built nuclear power reactors in the 20th century. 
where each one was kind of an individual design and build and license. And you went out in a field somewhere and you assembled millions of parts. But if you do it in a factory, you have a standardized design. You can do it much more cost effectively and much safer. And that's kind of what my vision for it is. You are probably one of the youngest science communicators out there right now. A lot of your time is taken up doing TV documentaries or, 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 or you know, talking to journalists like me. Is, how important is science communication to getting more people on board with things like the things you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think in general, science literacy in the public will do wonders for society. I think if you, if you think about the issues we face, issues in energy and the environment and medicine, the more informed your average citizen, your average voter, your average consumer is about the way the world works, the better. And so I realized kind of early on that I had a opportunity and probably a responsibility to help people understand science and technology. And I, I really enjoy it going out there and, and being able to do stories on technology that may be completely unrelated to what I do in my day to day, but that can help people understand how the world works. It's a great thing because the more young people we inspire to pursue science and technology and understand science and technology, the better off we're going to be. I mean, those are going to be the people that go on to develop cures for diseases, new types of transportation technology, new ways to help reduce the specter of, of climate change. Young people are going to be the key to that. How would a 14-year-old or a 10-year-old today find what you found? Is there a way that we can encourage that or that you found that is a good way to, to foster those curiosities at a young age? When I got into nuclear science, I had this incredibly vast network of information called the internet available. And not only the incredible stores of information on, on the internet, but the ability to be an email or a phone call away from great scientists at national labs and universities and things like that. And so for all the downsides that our internet age have caused, social media and, and whatnot, one of the, the real benefits is that we have access to the whole world at our fingertips. And so if you're young, if you're another 10-year-old that's interested in science, kind of the world is your oyster if you're willing to have the curiosity and go explore and educate yourself on these topics and, you know, reach out to experts. I was never shy about that. I was never shy to contact someone and say, hey, I need to know this piece of information. And so I, I feel incredibly privileged in that way. I also must say that I also feel incredibly privileged that I came from the upbringing I did and had the parents that I did who, who gave me these opportunities. I was lucky that they could move halfway across the country for the Davidson Academy and that my parents were willing to take me to national labs and things on vacation. And so I think being able to encourage young people, and that's something I, I always want to do throughout my career is be able to be a mentor and pass on a little bit of, of what was passed on to me to a new generation. All right, Taylor. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, of course. It's great to be with you. You know, I don't do a whole lot of interviews these days, but I, I love the state. I've kind of fell in love with it as my, as my adopted home and outlets like the Nevada Independent, which I think are incredibly important. Having the ability to report on state issues, that, that's an incredibly important thing for having an educated populace. And so I'm happy to be here and get to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. The show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at 
Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>